Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and strip off their skins from them, break their bones and chop them up for the pot as meat in a kettle. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision, and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths, because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious acts, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Father, as we open up and read from the prophet Micah, we pray you'll help us to see both historically and immediately what your desire is, that we would understand your heart, and Father, that we would be taught of you, and that we would see our Messiah, in Jesus' name, amen. I shot out a a Facebook post yesterday, maybe a couple days ago, asking who are the voices of this generation? I'm just curious. Who do people think are the voices of this generation? And I got all kinds of very interesting answers. I was asking, who are our prophets, our sages, who are our seers in 2014 today? Who are the voices? Who's who's speaking? You know, Dylan in the 60s spoke for a generation, some would say. Lennon in the 70s. Cosby in the 80s. I don't know. (laughs) Cobain in the 90s, of course, with the exception of Bill Cosby, they're all musicians, they're all entertainers. Entertainers have a tendency to speak because they're so loud and they're so up front and they're so seen. John Lennon was once called the prophet of his generation by some. Ask Ken Mansfield in a week and a half what he thinks because he was there. He knew. The prophet Micah came on the scene about 740 B.C. during a wave of prophets. In that generation, Joel, Amos, Jonah up in the north, Isaiah down in the south, and here comes Micah, probably as we talked about Wednesday night, a protege of Isaiah's. Much of what Micah writes reflects what Isaiah wrote at the same time. 
But the reality was, for all of these prophets actually sent by the Lord, these voices to speak for God, the prophets who mostly had the public ear were a bunch of drips. And we saw this, let me point this out to you who weren't here Wednesday, verse 6 of chapter 2 says, Do not speak out, they speak out, but if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. The phrase speak out there, nataf in the Hebrew, is to drip. So a literal translation would be, drip not, they drip. But if they drip not this, the shame will not depart. And there's a comparison here of words being like drops of water, of words dropping. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2, Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as as the showers on the herb. And so when God's prophets come, when God's men speak, when God's people share His word, it's like refreshing dew in the morning that, that feeds and nurtures the grass. It's like droplets that we long for, that we look forward to. But the prophets in Micah's day and age were drips. Dripping on hard soil that didn't want to hear the truth, but only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. In chapter 2, verse 11, says, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out or I will drip to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. In other words, they would flock to that guy. They'd go running to hear him speak. The prophet of the people was a windbag, God says. The prophet of the people is the one who's pointing them to the next beer bong. That's the place to go. And all the people are rushing after And it sounds familiar. By contrast, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that God, after He spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Not a drip, but a voice for this generation. Jesus Christ is the voice this generation needs to hear. The name of Jesus is the name that needs to be spoken. And if the church has fallen short in this generation, it is from that point. It is from the purpose of speaking Jesus Christ and of sharing the Word of Jesus Christ in this generation because His Word is the only Word that can save. Micah, the minor Messianic prophet, like Isaiah, again, his compadre, his prolific compadre, 66 chapters in Isaiah's book, but along comes Micah with just seven chapters of prophecy and the heart and soul of Micah's pithier prophecy is Messiah. All Micah focuses on. It's what he wants to talk about. Now here in chapter 3, there is a judgment that is laid out. You've got to see the judgment before you get to the grace. You have to understand the need before the need can be met. And so that's what we're seeing in the opening chapters, and especially chapter 3 of Micah, is he's pouring out the judgment of the Lord before he gets to the Messiah of the Lord. But before we go any further this morning, we've got to be clear about one thing. Absolutely crystal clear. Messiah is not just another voice. He is not just another messenger from the Lord. Other religions see Him that way. 
especially Islam, sees Messiah as one who will come before Muhammad, who is greater than. Uh -uh. See, the Bible is very clear. Messiah is the Lord. When Messiah comes, the Lord comes. Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus said, what do you think about the Christ? And you know, Bible students, every time you see Christ in the New Testament, it's just the Greek word, Christos, for anointed one, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christ, Messiah, same word. Jesus says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. It's a good Sunday school answer. And he said to them, well then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And then Jesus says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The implication, how do you call your son one who has come before you? How do you call one who is lesser than you, one who has come, who is greater than you? And it just shut their mouths. The Pharisees had nothing to say to that. How do you answer such great reasoning based in the prophetic scriptures? Acts chapter 2 verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Romans chapter 14 verse 8. Paul says, If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Christians, can you say that? I live for the Lord. And if I die, I die for the Lord. Either way, it is for the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that He might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Messiah is Lord. The Lord is the Messiah. When Messiah comes, God comes. Let's just be clear about that. And understand, the one about whom Micah prophesies is Jesus Christ, Messiah, Lord, God in the flesh. Now that might seem obvious to those of you who know Him. But to those who do not, we need to make that message clear. Because it hasn't been made clear. Jesus has been presented by many as just another prophet, as just another messenger. And there are lots of people who have no idea that God came down. That the Lord has been here and that the Lord is returning. Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and there is no other. And He is like no other. In fact, that's Micah's namesake. The name Micah means, who is like the Lord? And it begs the answer, no one. There is nobody like Him. So we come to Micah chapter 3, and this chapter begins the second of three messages in Micah's book. The first two chapters are message number one. Message number two beginning in chapter 3 through uh, chapter 5, which we'll, Lord willing, finish up Wednesday night. And then the final and third message of Micah's book is chapters 6 and 7. So it neatly divides, and you know it's a new message because he uses the word hear at the beginning. Hear, shema, listen up, pay attention, as he begins this morning. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel... Is it not for you to know justice? Shouldn't you leaders above all people put fairness and the rights of the people first? Isn't that your role? The Lord is saying. But instead, 
Israel has what I would call man-eating monarchs. Man-eating monarchs. You who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them up for the pot and as meat in the kettle. God calls the rulers of Israel a bunch of cannibals. You know, a cannibal is just someone who's fed up with people. Here we go. Cannibals like uh, pizza with everyone on it. If a cannibal's late for dinner, he always gets the cold shoulder. I'll stop there. This is one of the most graphic and grotesque descriptions in the Bible. It truly is. I had to stop myself right there because some of the cannibal jokes get, well, kind of biting. And I don't want you guys chewing on those instead of listening to the Word. It is a graphic description. And when Micah spoke these words, I guarantee you no one was laughing. It was a serious judgment that's being leveled here about the abuse and the corruption of power, and he compares it literally to skinning and eating people alive. We see a couple places in Scripture where that same description is used. Psalm 14, verse 4, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. I like the sound of that. The righteous generation. Wouldn't it be cool to be called that? Oh yeah, I grew up in the righteous generation. Isaiah 3 verse 14, The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. God's judgment of His leaders is serious business. 6,000 years of civilization has yet to teach mankind that people do not exist for their leaders. The leaders are put in place for the people. That's why God ordains leadership. And yet how have we seen it abused time and time again in culture after culture, country after country, those who rise to power abuse the people to maintain their own power. We see it today. And it doesn't matter your political persuasion, we all agree that Washington is messed up. In fact, Americans are really sour on Washington. President Obama has a 40% approval rating. What does that mean? It means 54% disapprove, and the other 6%, they just don't really care. 40% are like, yeah, it's alright. What do they think about Congress? 14% approval rating. And why is this? Because the average person walking along and the average city and town in America is looking at Washington, D.C. and going, Come on! We are not here for you. We put you there to oversee us and to lead us. And that's the mentality that's so lacking. Leaders are called to serve, not to be served in their own appetites. It's cannibalism. And Jesus Christ, Matthew 20, verse 28, you've got to get this sense of who Jesus is. That's my whole purpose this morning. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man, speaking of Himself, did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Church leaders, brothers, shepherds, listen up. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Holding that thought in mind, And by the way, whenever I talk to our leaders, our shepherds, our pastors, the application goes for every one of us because as I've said before, we are all leaders at some place. We all shepherd at some level, in some way in our lives, be it in our families, in our jobs, in our social setting, or in our church. We all shepherd at some level. And there is a terrifying judgment for someone who feeds especially on the flock of God, verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. And yes, I believe there is a time when church leaders cry out to the Lord and He's not listening. Because of the mindset, because of the action, because suddenly it's become about power. It's become about prestige. It's become about rule and authority when there's really only one authority who is Jesus Christ. And we have to keep that in mind. And this is exactly what the Lord warned through Moses would happen to the leadership in Israel. Deuteronomy 31.17 Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be consumed. Understand, when the light of the world hides His face, what you get is darkness and confusion. Blindness comes. And it's the opposite of God's desire. You see, He doesn't want to hide His face from us. He didn't want to hide His face from Israel. Just the opposite. He said to tell Moses to tell Aaron the following, Numbers 6.24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. That's God's prayer for God's people. I want my face to shine on you. And I want you to be illuminated with revelation and understanding. And hearts and minds that are clear. So you hear me speak. You know what my will is. You discern things in the world. But hungry cannibalistic leaders cause the Lord to turn His face. Just as you would. Just as I would. Were I to happen upon a cannibal. Who wants to look at that? Never trust a cannibal. (laughs) Eventually eventually he himself will be consumed by his own craving for power. Well, then he turns his direction. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Secondly, first we have the man-eating monarchs. Now we've got panhandling prophets. 
panhandling prophets, guys who are out there speaking messages, voices for their generation, and they're doing it for one reason. A little payback. A little kickback. Give me something and I will tell you what the Lord has for you. Pay me a bit and I'll give you some insight. The difference between these guys and the leaders is they're not dining on the flesh of the people. They're just dining on free meals. They're just looking for the easy road. Throw them a barbecue and they're filled with pleasant words for you. Prophecies of peace and good times and noodle salad. <laughs> but take away. And you got a problem. Why are these guys so popular? Because they speak what people want to hear. They say whatever gets them what they want to get. 2 Timothy 4.3 tells us the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Now maybe you cringed when I said Dylan was the voice of the 60's generation. Well, he was for an awful lot of people. And what did he say? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. What kind of answer is that? (laughs) There it goes. No, it's over there. No, I don't know what it is. It's just blowing, dude. Light up. (laughs) The danger with that kind of teacher is they are panhandling predators. They're in it for the money. They are in it for themselves. And as soon as they realize they really can't get anything more out of you, they'll either drop you or they will oppose you. Especially if you stand on biblical truth. The Bible says they declare holy war. Literally, that is, they sanctify war. Okay, what what does that mean? It means that false prophets and false teachers will fight hard to justify their bogus doctrine. As we've talked about recently, why is it that people get so uptight when you start to raise Scripture? Why is it that those opposed to biblical truth get so angry about it? Why can't we just have a conversation? Why can't I just sit down with you and, and reasonably talk about these things without getting all upset? It's because the false teachers are those who buy into falsehood fight against the truth. And they have to fight for what they believe. They have to fight for falsehood because they can't do it biblically. And this is why the prime directive of the Lord for His shepherds is prayer and the ministry of the Word. That is the role of your shepherds. That is the call of leaders in churches. Prayer, to pray to the Lord, and the ministry of the Word, to listen to what the Lord tells us to do. Not to come up with our own stuff. And Paul was specific on this. Acts 20.28 Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. See, I haven't lost any blood. On behalf of the church. I lost some blood last night on behalf of the apple I was cutting. (laughs) Oh, how I wish. We had such a good day yesterday. Cheryl and I working outside, cleaning up and mowing and getting stuff out to the dump. And I wish I could say I sliced my thumb open on some sharp metal when I was out there sweating and working hard. No, it was a knife cutting an apple. Oh, look at that. (laughs) 
Paul said, Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The greatest threat to the church, the greatest attack that comes against the church is false doctrine. It's false teachers. And so pastors, shepherds, church leaders are called to be about the Word of God and not their own Word. And to be in prayer to the Lord and not to any other. And the panhandling prophet crafts his message for the highest bidder. And ironically, in Israel, the highest bidder was the man-eating monarch. The prophets were pandering to the leaders, the kings, the rulers. And here is the judgment on them. Verse 6, Therefore it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. Think of that old Elton John song. Don't let the sun go down on me. If you don't want the sun to go down on you, seek the Lord. Turn to the Father. Let His face shine on you. And the sun will never go down on you. The seers, verse 7, will be ashamed. The diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. The worst response you can get from God is silence. He already turned His face from the rulers, so now they're in darkness. And He now silences His voice to the prophets, so you've got deafness. Deafness and darkness. And the result? They are shocked with shame. The Bible says they cover their mouths. That indicates a stunned humiliation. Just a... And they cover their mouths, and there may even be here a hint at the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The Amos chapter 5, verse 18 says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. And I submit to you the most confusing, the most dark, the most distressing time in the entire history of mankind is yet to come. And it will be in that time Jesus called the Great Tribulation. And those who are waiting until that time to see if it's all legitimate, to see if it's all true. The Left Behind movie is about to come out. Again, a second time, but this time with Nicolas Cage and the full Hollywood production. always kind of makes me cringe when they do this kind of thing. What's going to happen? But even if they present it exactly like the Left Behind uh, fictional book series based on Scripture is done, you still are going to have people coming out of the movie going, well, that's the case, I'll just wait and see. That's easy. I don't have to do anything about Christ right now. I just wait and see, and if the tribulation comes and I see all this stuff falling apart, breaking down, going bad, fine, then I'll believe in Jesus. Then I'll become a Christian. I'll buy the whole thing at that time. It's going to be dark. You're going to be deaf. It's going to be confusing. It will be delusional. If you can't come to Christ now in the age of grace, what makes you think you can come to Christ then in the age of darkness? Which is why the Bible is so clear ahead of time about things that are coming. By the way, how are Jesus' people supposed to respond when opposition gets their recompense? When someone opposed to God... You know, when, when the hammer falls on them, when judgment comes, how are, how are we honestly supposed to view the tribulation? Let me give you some advice on this one. Psalm 35, verse 22. In fact, turn over there. 
Because this really speaks beautifully to a Christian's response to a non-Christian or an anti-Christian being judged. How do we respond to this in a Christ-like manner? Psalm 35, verse 22. Best answer I've, I've seen. You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and do not let them, that is the opposition, those opposed to God, do not let them rejoice over me. And do not let them say in their heart, aha, our desire. And do not let them say we have swallowed him up, those cannibals. (laughs) Verse 26, Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, note this, here's your response, the Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of His servant. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. What is my response? What do I say to the coming tribulation? I don't go, yeah, the world's going to get theirs. I say, God be praised, He is righteous. Praise the Lord for His justice and His goodness. Hallelujah, my God will judge. And so you take the attention off of, you know, getting a thrill over someone getting theirs, and you turn it on to worship and praise of God the Father for what He's doing and what He has determined, and how He has decided to be just and righteous and good. Not easy to do, because I like revenge. That's what I enjoy in a good movie. You know, if, if the bad guys don't really get it, I'm a little disappointed. You know, now I'm probably the next revenge movie I see at the end of it going to go, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> but that is our heart, that is our calling. I'll tell you what, the world outside is looking at Christians and they're saying, You guys just can't wait for the tribulation. Because you think you're so good, you just can't wait for this world to fall apart. Well, I'm a good person. And I want this world to be saved. The trees and the plants and the fishies, my brothers. And people really think that about Christians. You guys are just waiting for the world to blow up. You think that's so cool. Well, that is so unloving. And you know what? There's some truth to that. It is unloving. And it is ungracious. And it is not our place. Our place is not to rejoice when ISIS gets bombed. Our place is to pray that hearts are changed. Keep these things in mind. Because the day of the Lord is coming and we are not called to gloat in the shame or judgment of those who are opposed to Christ. We are called rather to rejoice in the righteousness of God. Now, Micah speaks up with his only self-description and I love it. Verse 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act and even to Israel his sin. That will fill you up. See, that is a nourishment that's real and actual. And it's all the power and protein a a servant of the Lord God needs. 
No man-eater or panhandler. Micah was, number three, note this, what we are called to be, and that is a spirit-sustained servant. I am a spirit-sustained servant. I function with strength and confidence because the Spirit of the Lord God is within me. That's where it comes from. Paul felt the same way. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. Verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It is the power of God that comes out of His Word. It is the strength of the Lord that comes by His Spirit, not by any other means. And our lives are to be so filled with the Spirit of Messiah, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, that our faith functions by His power. That our identity, like Micah's, is secure in His name. That our message brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Does your voice do that? It's a question I ask myself. Does my voice do that? Lift up Jesus. Is my identity in Him or in something I'm doing? Am I empowered by my faith in Jesus Christ? This is all the sense that I get from Micah who says, you know, to be filled with the Spirit of God, there's your power. To be filled with the Spirit of Messiah. It means, my friends, you know you are when you start to get hungry for righteousness. When you find yourself thirsting after the things of God. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It means when I'm filled with the Spirit of Messiah that I begin to produce, or He produces rather in me, the fruit of the Spirit. You know the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When these things are apparent in your life, the Holy Spirit is at work. And you can know good fruit. And it means we walk after the nature of Messiah. Who's exactly who Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Again, one of my favorite verses, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, on Messiah, on the Lord Himself, on the Christ. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, don't do this. I used to, when I read Scripture, and I would get to these these lists, like the fruit of the Spirit, or the list there of the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord, blah, blah, blah. I would read these things and think it's just another biblical list. That the prophet or the writer, he's just throwing out a handful of words to be descriptive. See, that's what I do. That's not what the Bible's doing. You need to understand when, the, when a list is given, it is incredibly specific and purposeful. And what you read in Isaiah 11, verse 2, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is a very specific list in which the prophet, by the Spirit of Christ, is prophesying the very nature of Christ. These things describe and define Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if Messiah dwells in me, if I have the Spirit of Christ within me, like Micah, these things will be seen in me. I will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength. And I will have knowledge and I guarantee you I will have the fear of the Lord. 
Because these things are Messiah. It's like the seven branches of the golden lampstand in the temple. Isaiah declares these seven attributes. And that's a great example because he starts with the Spirit of the Lord, which would be like the main shaft of the branch of the lampstand. Shaft number one with a lamp on it. And then the other six attributes branching off on either side. So you've got seven lamps. The lampstand in the temple, and it's a beautiful picture, the lampstand, to remind the priests of the Spirit of the Lord. And that's what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Now, consider this. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Christ, if He indwells you, He is the opposite of this cannibalistic world. Completely different. He is the Messiah who invites us to consume Him. Rather than the false prophets and leaders who would consume their people, Jesus says, no, no, I want you to feed on Me. I want you to consume Me. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in Him. John 6.56 What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I want you to consume Me so completely that as you consume Me, I fill you and I become part of you. Now don't get all mystical and weird on Me. I'm not going New Age on you. You're still you. I'm still Me. But rather than being the loser I used to be, I am Me led by, inspired by, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And that changes the game. To consume Christ and be filled with His Spirit. By the way, that also gives us the ability not to shy away from confrontation. Notice what else Micah says there in verse 8. He says, to make known to Jacob and his his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. That's why I'm empowered. I'm called to speak the truth. To put it like it is. Why? So that Israel and Jacob will have a chance to survive, to be saved. Why can't you Christians shut up in this world? Because it is our calling to give this world the chance, the opportunity to be saved by Jesus Christ. And if I am silent, I am not functioning fully in the power of the Lord. You don't have to stand on a street corner with a sandwich board. You can just invite a friend to come to the church with other believers and hear Jesus preached. You can just talk with someone about Jesus. But you're not afraid to confront the lies as Micah was not afraid. And biblically confronting his own people, Micah now turns his aim south to include all of Jerusalem and Judah. Verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. You don't have to think too hard to make immediate application to twisting things that are straight. In our culture, what is the opposite of straight? What is it? If you're talking on the news and someone says, well, that guy's straight and that guy's not straight. No, you know, to me, it's just, it's an amazing, an amazingly obvious definition. One thing is straight, the other one is twisted. Twisting that which is straight who builds Zion with bloodshed, Jerusalem with violent injustice, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests there in the temple instruct for a price, 
Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? (laughs) Calamity will not come upon us. That's what they kept saying. And you remember this as we've gone through the prophets in the history of Israel. Leading up to the fall of, of Israel in the north, they didn't think anything bad would happen until Assyria crushed them. And then in Jerusalem, as long as we have the temple, Babylon can't touch us. Well, Babylon burned the temple down while they were touching. (laughs) While they were wiping you out. Micah calls it like he sees it. These man-eating monarchs in the north, these panhandling prophets also in the north, and now down in the south, these price-grabbing priests. Everybody's in it for the buck. And they all share a few things that seem awfully familiar. They're callous to justice. says they abhor justice. They don't even want justice. It's not about justice. It's, it's about the political party and strength. It's incredible. I watch our Supreme Court. And to hear this statement made in the news, the Supreme Court was divided along party lines. The Supreme Court's not supposed to be influenced by party. Of course we know they are. They're human beings. And the president that puts in the Supreme Court and the strength of that, you know, that's where it goes. That's the, it's, it's unbelievable to me. There is no impartiality. They abhor justice. They can, they're callous to it. They contort things that should be straight, as I just referred to. Twisting straight things? The word straight in the Hebrew is yashar, and it is the word that means righteous. It's the twisting of that which is right, of that which is good, of that which God created to be so. They contort it. They construct with bloodshed, building on the backs of bloodied people. And think about how different that is, again, from Messiah. John 18.36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. These are those who cash in on their own people. They're confident in their own religion. Sounds a lot like Hamas. Callous, contorting things that should be straight, constructing with bloodshed, cashing in on their own people, confident in their religion. Sounds like the Islamic State. ISIS. Sounds a lot like the world's governmental systems if you really think about it. I can't think of a government on earth right now that doesn't at some level act this way. Callous to justice, contorting things that should be straight, constructing with bloodshed, cashing in on their own people, and confident in some form of religion. (laughs) John Corson made a comment about Washington politicians going to the national prayer breakfast in the morning and then out for cocktails that night. And how does that work? You know, wheeling and dealing, they're dark deals. But but we're all at the national prayer breakfast. Amen. And it's false confidence in false religion. And so the prophet Micah reveals an all-too-familiar outcome. And recognize this. He does it through Israel. Israel is the example that we might understand what happens when this is how government's leaders function. Verse 12, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. And it was. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And it did. 
And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And it did. And Micah 3 verse 12 was confirmed in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 26, 18. This is exactly what took place. Now, take all of this. And consider a moment what I just said, that Israel is the example. What does that mean? Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10.11, These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Well, that tells me what happened to Israel then, we better be very aware of right now. Those upon whom the ends of the age have come. You might pause and say, well, I read all this, and I understand, you know, it's kind of fun to get after government. We can do that. But God wouldn't do that to the church, right? Would He? Would He do to the church what He did to Israel? Well, remember the seven attributes of the Spirit. Bible students, what do those seven attributes represent? Or what's representative of them in the temple? The lampstand. The lampstand. Think about the lampstand. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, John sees Jesus there. And Jesus begins to explain to John what it is that he's seeing. What he sees is Jesus standing, quote, in the midst of seven golden lampstands. I love the picture. Because... The lampstand representative of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11.2, now you see an extension of that. The lampstands, the seven lampstands, Jesus tells John, this is the church. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches, which are representative of the church at large. And so I love that picture. If you can imagine it in your minds, Jesus walking in and among the lampstands, what that says is Jesus walking in and among His church. Among church fellowships from place to place, moving about on a Sunday morning, a Wednesday night, through the week. To be among His people. God's always wanted to be among His people. But listen to this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And right now we're all doing the praise dance. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's us, Jesus. Right on. He sees what we're doing. And then he says, but I have this against you, huh? (laughs) What? That you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and watch this, will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I've seen him do it. Perhaps you have too. What are you talking about, Rick? I've seen God remove lampstands. I've seen churches go under. Or not because they're attacked by the Islamic State. I've seen churches just dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until there's no one left and they close their doors. One of the greatest tragedies in the Western world is churches throughout, cathedrals throughout Great Britain that are museums today. Because the church dwindled. 
well, they just, you know, people just went other places. No, Jesus removed the lampstand. If you are not going to shine with the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I'll remove you. He's got multiple lampstands. And Jesus is going to work through the church, through the fellowship, that allows His name to be glorified. Not just allows it, that glorifies His name. The church that that speaks His word. The church that is not afraid to say, we are of Jesus the Messiah. And His word alone is the word that we speak and the word that we listen to. Or else I'll remove your lampstand. Listen and understand. The removal comes when the people lose their first love. Who was the first century's church's first love? Jesus Himself. When you lose the first love of Christ. Let me put it this way. The degree to which we, like Micah, are filled with the power of the Spirit of Christ, both corporately and personally, depends completely on whether or not Jesus remains our first love. As long as Jesus is the first love of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, the Bridge Christian Fellowship will shine and will be filled corporately with the Spirit of Messiah. Once Jesus ceases to be our first love, we are headed down the road of the removal of a lampstand. Same thing personally. When my life becomes about love and so many other things, we're asked a question on Wednesday night by a young man. Is it wrong to to want money? Is it wrong to desire things? No, not in of itself. But when you start to love money more and more, when you start to desire things more and more, guess what? That desire is going to replace your love of the Lord because you can't love God in money. Jesus said that. My love for Jesus is primary. And it is that love that allows the filling of His Spirit and the power of His Spirit in my life and my life and our lives together to be lit up, to shine as with the face of the glory of Christ Himself as we reflect that glory. Now please understand, I'm not talking about God waffling on a person's salvation. What I'm talking about is us waffling in weakness. Becoming ineffective. All those churches I've talked about that have closed their doors, does that mean all those Christians are going to hell? No, because God has saved them by the blood of Christ. Scattered other places maybe is where they've gone. But I'll tell you one thing, if Christ ceases to be your first love, you will cease to be effective for Him in the kingdom. And if you want a powerful, effective, Spirit-filled life, then your focus, my focus, is to love Jesus the Messiah. For Him to be Lord and Messiah in my life. Two systems stand before us this morning. One is a man-eating system feeding on people for power. The other nourishes the people with power. One is a panhandling system out for every last cent. The other provides all we could ever need. One system has been replayed over and over and over in futility. Even Israel tried its hand at the world system and we see what happened. The other system, not yet fully realized, is destined for glory. The kingdom of God. The world system is headed by the one the Apostle Paul called the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. The 
system that we look toward is Messiah's kingdom come, ruled by Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. Now, I want to do one more thing before we're done this morning. I want you to understand, to see through Micah's words, how a ruling system will function. If you want to know how a ruling system functions, and we'll do this quickly, if you want to know how a ruling system functions, you look at the leader. You look at the leader. Who's in charge? Because the leader does reflect the people. And if you don't like how that sounds in America today, hey, America voted. The leader reflects the people. Even more so, the founder. The founder is what that movement is, what that governmental system is all about. In the book of Micah, the minor messianic prophet, he overflows with descriptions of Messiah. Listen to these. Here's a list. I'm going to throw them at you real fast. In chapter 1, verse 3, he's called the coming one. The coming one. He's the one who Micah says is going to tread the high places of the land, melting mountains and splitting valleys. Messiah is the coming one. Secondly, chapter 2, verse 13, He is the breaker. I like that. He's the one who breaks through. The one who goes first. He breaks through. He blazes the trail for His people. As we talked about earlier this week, He's the one who... who Man, He cuts the grass and He makes a trail and you follow after Him. He broke through death so that if I die, I can break out of death. He is the breaker, the coming one. Number three, He's the king. Number four, Micah describes Him as the Lord at their head. Chapter 2, verse 13. In fact, chapter 2, verse 13, He's called the breaker, the king, the Lord at their head. The Lord out in front of them. The Lord saying, come on guys, it's this way. The Lord who always goes first never asks you to go before He does. The coming one, the breaker, the king, the Lord at their head. Chapter 3, verse 8, He is the power. He is the power of a church, of a movement, of a fellowship, of an individual. Christ, Messiah, is the power who strengthens the people with His Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is number 6 on the list. He's the teacher. We get into this Wednesday night. I love this. He's the one who teaches about His ways on the mountain of the Lord as all the people are saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Let's go be taught of Him and learn of His ways. He's the teacher. Chapter 2, verse 12 and chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 both refer to Him as the assembler. The assembler of the remnant. I was terrible with models as a kid. You know, trying to assemble those things, nine times out of ten, it was broken and there was glue all over my fingers and on my face. And I'm like, Mom! You know, not a good assembler. Jesus knows how to assemble things. And is the assembler of the remnant. He calls the lame, the outcast. He calls the afflicted of Israel back to Zion. The coming one, the breaker, the king, the Lord at their head, the power, the teacher, the assembler. Number eight, chapter five, verse two, calls him the ruler. Messiah is the ruler, the one with absolute power. Chapter 5, verse 2 says He's the one whose goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Messiah, gang, is eternal. He is God in the flesh. So He is the ruler. In three different places, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 14, He is called the shepherd. He is the shepherd over a noisy, joyful flock. The shepherd. Chapter 5, verse 5. He is peace. That's the key verse of the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 5. 
He is our peace. Who else are you going to go to for peace? Who else, in who else is peace incarnate? Jesus is peace. He is called, chapter 7, verse 7, the God of my salvation. And by the way, He takes your salvation quite personally. He died for it. He is called the light, chapter 7, verse 8. He is called the advocate, chapter 7, verse 9. He's the one pleading my case. But not only does He plead my case, He's also, chapter 4, verse 3, the final judge. He's both advocate and judge. He pleads my case and He executes perfect justice. Now I ran through that list quickly. If you missed anyone, any of them, don't come and ask me. Well, but I want the list. Open up to Micah chapter 1 and look for it. And if you missed any of the verses I gave you, they're all here. All I did to find that was I started in verse 1 and I started reading through what talks about Messiah, what points out Messiah. And there are 14 right there and I may have missed some. Coming one, breaker, king, lord, power, teacher, assembler, ruler, shepherd, peace, salvation, light, advocate, the final judge. And if you are fed up with the feeding frenzy of this world, look at Jesus. He's the voice this generation needs to hear. He's the one that it's all about. And He's coming. And what Micah has beautifully done for us this morning is laid out two world systems. Take your pick. But I caution you, whichever you decide, go after with all your heart. Should you choose the world system, dig in and go for it. It's all you got. And should you choose Christ Jesus, you go after Him with all your heart. Pilate said to him, So you're a king? And Jesus answered and said, You say that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, we bless Your name this morning. And we recognize You are the voice that every generation needs to hear. Father, You and Your Word said, I I, I visit the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You continue to come back. And generation after generation after generation, Lord Jesus, You come to see. And You speak... And for our part, the question is, will we hear? And I pray we will. Lord Jesus, speak loudly in this final generation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.